Today's episode of Track and Food on the Mid-Range Podcast Network is brought to you by Scout. If you're wanting to learn more about Vancouver's food and cultural sphere with regards to community news, new restaurant openings, essential guides to some of the city's best offerings, as well as who's hiring, Scout is where you should go. You can find them at scoutmagazine.ca. That's scoutmagazine.ca. And if you're on Vancouver Island, they also have a sister website called Islandist. Same type of content, only island-driven. That's islandist.ca. We're proud to have Scout as our presenting sponsor, as we believe what they scout out is an excellent complement to what we're offering here on Track and Food. Do check them out. Once again, that's scoutmagazine.ca. Welcome to the Track and Food Podcast. You're joining us on a very beautiful Thursday afternoon today in sunny Vancouver. It's like over 30 degrees and we're sweltering and it's hot and it's August and I'm loving every bit of it. However, my co-host Mickey McLeod is here today joining us and he's shaking his head because he just hates this weather. How are you, Mickey? I'm good. Good. What's up? How's it going? Hello, everyone out there. Yeah, it's too hot for me, man. It's like over 30. It's like not good. How's Pete the Cat? He's dying right now. He's literally dying. If it gets to 30 or 31 and over, he's just like a mess. A mess of hot furry soup. Yeah, but he's cute as fuck, so that's all that matters. Well, how are you? It's been a while. I'm good. I know it's been a while. Doing well. Just enjoying the last little bits of summer. Finishing my school semester. So I have my last final on the 18th. And so I'm just focusing on that. Other than that, everything's hunky-dory. Any new developments you want to share with our uh, guests that have changed in your life of recently that I already know? Oh, I quit my job. That's a big one. <laughs> Kinda. Yeah, I quit my job a couple weeks ago. I didn't feel like it was in my best interest from an ethical and moral standpoint. I know that sounds kind of preachy, but the field of work I'm going into and just the life changes I'm making didn't make sense for me to stay at the hotel. So I am currently jobless, although I have some prospects that I might be pursuing, but TBD. That's good. That's exactly. be determined. We've had some fun days up at Rec Beach this summer. It's been good. Yeah, it's been a good summer. I've been really trying the last two summers because I'm a fall person and I really enjoy September, October, and November. I enjoy the temperature. I enjoy when the fall rain comes. I just really love that season. But I've been trying to focus lately more on enjoying summer for what it is and trying to like forget about the heat because usually the end of summer, I get antsy. I'm like, ah, I just want fall to start. But I know it's like opposite from a lot of people. They really enjoy summer and especially the end of summer. And when it ends, they get sad. But I'm like the opposite. But I've been trying to like shift my perspective on that. So we have been out many times. I've been to the beach probably the most in terms of time at the beach. It probably rivals like the last 10 years of my life. Like I've been to the beach more in this one summer season than like the last 10 years of my life. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And for all the listeners out there, the last time we went to the beach, which was last week, it was great. It was fun. Me, Tristan, we hung out. And unfortunately, it's the first time that these two fuckers decided to go naked on me. And I just don't qualms to anybody who does that. I'm all for people who do that. It's just not my personal preference. I don't care. If you want to do it, go ahead. I wasn't expecting you two to do it. <laughs> I've never seen you guys do it. Well, the thing is, Jamie, we're at a nude beach. And that's I know that. I get it. This is what I've realized this year in sort of my opening of my different perspectives is that I feel bad now when I'm there and I'm not naked because it is the only naked beach. So I feel like I'm participating more in the community down there and I really like it. And Tristan's into it now too. So 
We'll get you on there. We'll get those pants off and get some sun on those nether regions. <laughs> I'm too shy. I don't know if I can do it. I get too shy about that stuff for some but reason. Imagine how good it's going to feel when you finally like, let go of that and you're like, oh, I'm naked at Red Beach. The best. It might get there. Well, I mean, there's good news. I mean, I told Tristan about this already, but I finally have decided that I'm going to get my first tattoo. Yes, you're getting a tattoo. Congratulations. That's another little hurdle for you. Well, I mean, it's been something I've been wanting to do for fucking like 10 years now. I've just been too much of a pussy. Yeah, but I mean, from the perspective of just getting it done, something you've been thinking about for a long time, right? It's yeah. Kind of good to get that ink. Yeah, he set me up with someone that I'm going to go check out. And then what's well, funny, because I already know of like three other tattoos I'm probably going to get really quickly right after. Yeah, you're getting Hello Kitty, right? That's one of them? Really? But in pink. <laughs> Why don't you get that first and then I'll get it. We can be teammates on Hello Kitty. Let's get matching Hello Kitty tattoos. I talked to my best friend and he has a really cool tattoo on his arm. It's like a long feather one that I really like. And I'm going to get the same one as him. Kind of an old nice. Love it. Yeah. So that, and then I have a couple other ones I want to get. So I feel like this will be a quick, get the first one. And then the next three or four will probably be very quick after that. So, well, if I know anything, I know that if people have tattoos, it elevates your cool factor by like 10%. So, so you're saying basically that you're cool. You're to get cooler, bro. <laughs> really cool. I'm excited. It should be fun. But it was funny. I was talking to Tristan about it. And Tristan's like, anybody out there listening, Tristan's our compatriot with Midrange co-hosts our other podcast, Beats and Repeats. And he works at Strange Fellows. Yeah, he's tattooed. He's like fully tattooed, basically. His whole body is. And I love that. It's awesome. It looks great on him. He's like, yeah, it's a slippery slope. You're going to be getting them all over. And I was like, no, I'm probably just going to get them on my arms. That's what I keep it really simple. I don't see myself being someone who gets a lot, but you never know. Maybe you'll be by this time next year, fully tattooed and naked at Wreck Beach. Stranger things have happened. So. Yes, exactly. I feel like that's your goal in life now. <laughs> to be naked up most times. Yeah. I'm even like nude suntanning on my deck. I feel more connected to nature when I'm it, naked. It was funny though, when Tristan was walking around, cause he's like this tall skinny guy and his butt cheeks were like burnt in certain areas, which was pretty funny. Yeah. So it's like really funny watching him walk and he's just like, he's white everywhere, but his little butt was like burnt, like red burnt. Yeah. So it was mine actually. Yeah. You got to be careful when you're nude. That's the one thing is you got to make sure to always be rotating in proportion to the sun otherwise like my whole left thigh was completely like fire engine red it was pretty uncomfortable for a couple of days but gotta always remember to rotate well i'll tell you this when you go to the beach and you want to be civil with your friends and you want to do nice things and you say you know one of your friends is like hey can you put some lotion on my back i'm not putting lotion on your ass so don't even ask i can get my own ass that's the thing back's a tough one like middle to middle upper back's tough but like i can get on my ass no problem always with the lotion <laughs> Everybody out there, welcome back. Mickey, this is the kind of conversations that we and I tend to have. So this is how our summer's been going. We've been enjoying the weather. But today we're here to talk about a really cool podcast that we just finished recording with the CEO of a really awesome nonprofit based in Victoria. They're called Theracil. They're advocating for the legalization of psilocybin here in Canada. They just recently submitted a 165-page proposal, which is pretty much, as he would say in the interview, is verbatim for what they did with marijuana 20 years ago to Health Canada to make it legal because it's been illegal in Canada since 1974. And yeah, they're advocating for good therapy, working with doctors and therapists and stuff like this and health and making sure that people have another option when it comes to dealing with stressors in their lives, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and obviously what they've been doing initially, which is end of life treatment. So yeah, it was really nice to talk with him. He's super candid. Yeah, he was really fun, really knowledgeable too. What did you think of that conversation? You could tell he was really invested in what they're doing. He cared a lot about this cause specifically. And I think that's really important. We're entering this time of monetization. Seemingly, it's going to be not only natural occurrences of drugs like cannabis psilocybin, but also manufactured man-made things like MDMA and obviously whatever the chemical compound and acid is that makes our brains react to it. 
but we're kind of in this time of this growing economy. Like when we decriminalize it, it's going to be like the wild, wild west again, like it was with cannabis. So whether it's on a province level or a federal level, you know, there's going to be, I think, some negative aspects of it. But listening to Spencer talk, it seemed like he was more focused on what their nonprofit does, which is palliative, PTSD, end of life. And what he articulates really beautifully, that's sort of the way to start in terms of introducing these broad concepts to the community of Canadians and especially from a federal level, right? Absolutely. It's really exciting. I think the rollout of marijuana wasn't the most eloquent. It was obviously done province per province. It was a little bit different. I think they should have granted out more licenses and stuff like this. There's a lot of things about it. But I think overall, people are probably really happy that it's legalized now and that there's access. At the end of the day, I mean, like, we're a food and culture podcast, but I mean, this is something that affects all Canadians, whether you work in the industries that we like to talk about. We know people who have issues in their life, trauma, and working in the field that we do, they're high stress. People tend to have a lot of issues in their lives and things that they maybe need to cope with. And psilocybin is not addictive. It's better than SSRIs. Most SSRIs, there's a lot of side effects that come with them, waking, moodiness, stuff like that, loss of sexual appetite, stuff like that. So with psilocybin, you don't get any of that. The research is definitely there. That's what they're advocating. That's what they're working on right now. I only see nothing but positives coming from this whole thing, the legalization of this. And I think it's not if it's going to happen, it's just when. It's really cool to speak with people like Spencer who really care. You can really tell he really cares. That was the one thing I took from that conversation that really wants to help people. Also, in terms of like the SSRIs and stuff, people who are neurodivergent and have really strong symptoms, like people from schizophrenia and bipolar disease, don't get it misconstrued. Like these man-made pharmaceuticals are like life-saving for those people. We're talking about this middle ground of people who are suffering from general anxiety or depression or stuff like that, but also want to get more in tune with, you know, there's a lot of different quotes and sayings on what focus work and mindfulness work and meditation and drugs like psilocybin do. And a lot of it comes back to sort of getting us ready for death or getting more comfortable with the idea of death, sort of an existential sort of, I guess, a way to see past the existentialist nature of us being as humans, right? So there's this sort of like area developing in psychology and also neuroscience where it's like, we're starting to sort of get more detailed in the areas of which we treat mental illness, right? We're born with anxiety from evolution of our fucking species, right? Like we're hunter gatherers, like we're genetically predisposed to have stress and anxiety. And anyone who says that they don't have stress and anxiety and are experiencing a complete happy life, it's really important to get in touch with these sort of sides of yourself and to get comfortable with talking about your feelings and being vulnerable and reaching out to these specific nonprofits, like just to get education about what is, because it's not about if you're fucked up in the head or you're not. Like everybody is inherently, it's part of being a human. So the sooner we can understand that the stigma behind getting mental health treatment is slowly dissolving, I think. And I'm just speaking from my personal experience and what I'm into now and studying. But I hope people listening to Spencer Talk can understand, or at least if they have barriers up on them reaching out and getting help, hopefully. And then listening to Spencer talk about it will sort of help dissolve a few of those barriers because it's becoming more crystallized, I think, in terms of how we think about mental health, which we've talked about a lot before on our show. And it definitely relates to the food and culture industry as well. Absolutely. It's so poignant and so on topic of a lot of things that are happening in people's lives right now. And I think we've had people on the past talking about mental health and stuff like that and where we see that going. And this is just kind of another realm of that. Coming out of the pandemic too, like it's no more topical or relevant than right now shortages now that we're seeing with staffing in establishments and stuff like that. Whether you want to 
acknowledge it or not, we're all reeling still from COVID and we will be for a long time. It's been a very life-changing situation for a lot of people, right? That's also a part of mental health as well as checking in with yourself and seeing how you can still be quote unquote happy or experiencing a happy existence. But there's a lot of unconscious and subconscious stuff that happens and manifests itself that we don't necessarily can't cognitively relate to. And that's something that he touches on as well. So it's not really about necessarily like what you're telling yourself with your internal dialogue. It's like about what you're doing, like what your actions are doing, are you self-medicating or like whatever you're doing, right? So that's all wrapped into the discussion of psilocybin, I think. Absolutely. This is a great conversation. Spencer's great, super smart. I really, really enjoyed this one. As always, you can find us on midrangevancouver.com. Website's been great. We haven't been posting as much this summer. We've been kind of hanging low and enjoying it, but the weeklies have been fun. And uh, Tristan just posted a really good essay today on the movie Pig. So when this comes out, that'll probably been up for a couple of days. So I haven't seen that yet, but he says it's a great movie and it's definitely not what you expect. So if you're looking to get a little bit of insights into that, definitely check it out. Mickey, do you guys have any beats and repeat on the way? We're sort of finishing. We have our last episode that just came out. I don't know if you plugged it or not, but basically we watched Lars von Trier's film, The House That Jack Built, and we talked about Metric, their first album, 2003, Old World Underground. So if you're interested in early 90s, alternative, new wave, pop rock, check that out. And if you're interested in Lars von Trier's ridiculous films, then you can check that as well. I don't think we'll be doing another episode probably till next month until I'm done finals, getting ready for my next semester or so. It doesn't really matter when I do a podcast. I could do a podcast all day. It doesn't matter. Do it at midnight. Ambulance is fucking just going nonstop. It's so yeah, I heard that. That's okay. I listen to a lot of podcasts where some audio discrepancies come in. I think um, I was listening to one of Russell Brand's podcasts and I think it was Gabor Mate. He might live by you actually because there was like an ambulance that went by like twice during that hour podcast. So I was doing an episode this morning while I was doing it. It was just like ambulance, ambulance, ambulance. And I was like, oh my God. Everyone goes, why do you record your bathroom? I'm like, this is the closest thing I can do. Are living in downtown east side, man. Ambulance is a lot around. I'm debating moving though. Oh, nice. Yeah, you should. You need some more tranquility in my life. Also, it's good to change things. How long have you been there for? In this area, I've been in this area since 2014. It's good to relocate and have changes like that happen. But I got to be close to a good basketball court. And yeah, hoop with a net. Strathcona has a net with it. Oh, is there a net at that hoop? Oh, I didn't know. I thought it was just a rim. Everyone, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Spencer was fantastic. Without further ado, we'll bring him on. And as always, you can check us up on our presenting website, Scout Magazine, as always. And we appreciate all the work we do with them. Without further ado, here's Spencer. Spencer Hawkswell, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Well, I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah, just a beautiful day on the West Coast here. Super excited to be chatting to you too about mushrooms. This is definitely an episode I think a lot of people probably want to tune into. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably avid users <laughs> of uh, mushrooms and stuff like this, but I love what you guys are doing. You work for, or are the CEO of a nonprofit called Therapcell. Everybody out there, this is a nonprofit based in Victoria. You guys have been doing a lot of great work and you guys are in the news a lot lately and for a great reason. You recently submitted a proposal to Health Canada to talk about the legalization of psilocybin in the country and kind of how that should go about. When I read that, I was really curious and I kind of delved more into what you guys are trying to do. And I'm really kind of eager to kind of expand and kind of learn about what you guys are trying to occupy in this space and how eventually we can have this become a legalized substance. So why don't you give us a kind of a little bit of background of where you come from and then kind of what you guys are looking to do here? Yeah, for sure. So myself, I come from a business background. I graduated from Dalhousie University. And upon thinking that I was going to go back to school for psychology, and obviously having had my own experience with psychedelics and psilocybin, I knew that psychology, but specifically psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, was definitely an avenue that I wanted to explore. And had a pretty interesting upbringing with a mom who is working in palliative care, mental health and addictions, 
and then lots of friends and family who had suffered from addiction and mental health issues just kind of seemed right. You probably all experienced and witnessed the changes in our perceived notion of what mental health is in Canada. And obviously since COVID, and again, this was before COVID, but did more and more over the past year. So I just kind of saw that as a calling and that there was a rising tide with psilocybin psychotherapy from all the work that was going on at John Hopkins, NYU and UCLA, the stuff that MAPS had done. And so upon quitting my job, doing some traveling and thinking about where I was going to go to school or what I was going to do next, came across a psychotherapist named Bruce Tobin on the island in Victoria. And Bruce was a psychotherapist who was essentially putting together this similar, if not the same application that Canadians have put together for access to cannabis back in 2000. And upon seeing it, I was just like, well, obviously this is next, right? It's a natural substance. 20 years of cannabis tells us pretty clearly that Canadians have a right to whatever medicine they want to use. So I saw his work and just messaged him and say, hey, this is you know a just cause and right up my alley. You know, I have a business degree. I was going to go to school for psychology. Maybe I shouldn't be a psychotherapist. Maybe I can do a bit more helping them. And so Bruce just welcomed me with open arms. I think drove out to Victoria the day I heard back from him, just hopped in my mom's car and then drove it out here and met him. And sure enough, we just clicked. It was like, what we got to do is clear. We have to raise money for court for his case that he was building. He'd been waiting three years for a response from the government. And after working with him for a while, we put together Theracil, a nonprofit that would have four main pillars. And really, this is like the learnings from cannabis that we'd have to focus on the advocacy and access for patients. That's individual patients. We'd have to change Bruce's application a bit, not to be about a doctor, because unfortunately, the truth is most politicians don't care about a doctor. They care about patients. They're making it patient-centered and focused. The other pillar would have to be about public education so that we would do this responsibly, letting people know of the merits and limitations. The third would be education for professional healthcare practitioners and therapists, and finally, research. And so we supported patients. We had our organization, our nonprofit put together, and I guess I became a lobbyist too, an advocate. And about 104 days later, the first four Canadians, among them were Thomas Hartle and Laurie Brooks, got access to psilocybin through Section 56. And that was really just the beginning. And since then, we've helped 35 other Canadians get access, all supported by their doctors and therapists, and also helped 19 healthcare practitioners get access. And we've started a training program. People are asking what's next, what's next. And we certainly can't just keep helping patients individually like that. We're a bottleneck and it's the last thing we want to be. In a way, we want to put ourselves out of a job and the way to do that is regulations. I think I read about Lori's case. She's in Victoria as well, am I correct? Just on the mainland, but yeah, close enough. She was diagnosed with the cancer and she's in her early 50s. And I was reading about how she never used psilocybin or any type of substance like that before. And she was saying that she did like a six-hour kind of guided treatment. And it was definitely something that kind of awakened her in a lot of ways and kind of helped her deal with a lot of anxiety. I think I have a quote here. I think she says, it helped her smooth out her feelings and a lot of things like this. And I'm sure a lot of people listening probably have never tried them before. don't even know too much about the psilocybin market, but there's definitely a large burgeoning market, whether it's coming from down in Silicon Valley and people who are microdosing and there's a lot of growth business coming into it right now. Do you feel like this is going to be a hard transition for Health Canada to move into or this is going to be something that's adopted quickly? It shouldn't be a hard transition, right? And that's why I'm working my ass off over here with the rest of our team and patients and healthcare practitioners is in Canada here, we're all super blessed to be the beneficiaries of advocates, lawyers, doctors who fought for 20 years to get us access and to establish precedents around access to things like solicitor cannabis and medical assistance in dying. And we benefit from that. And the reason that that all happened was because of our charter, our charter of rights and freedoms. Our charter hasn't changed. 
It's just, instead of X, it's Y, right? Instead of cannabis, it's psilocybin. So we can go through all the same motions. We can go to court for 20 years. The government can fight tooth and nail. Sometimes people are a bit upset that that's what governments do, that they're slow. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And in this instance, it's bad because there are Canadians today who have access or are using psilocybin. And the whole reason Health Canada, the minister's position, if our regulations exist, is to protect people, not to harm them. So right now, it's just we're making a case that people are being harmed. And if Health Canada and the minister want to make these regulations reality for the Canadians using psilocybin, they could do that immediately. They're the ones who will set the limitations, not me, not us. So all we can do is ask. And certainly there's got to be quite a bit of appetite for them because they've put themselves in a situation where they've extended rights to some Canadians and not others. As you two may have seen if you're in Vancouver, they're selling mushrooms on the street. I think on Main Street are commercial drivers and dispensaries. And when that's happening and the government is still just turning this blind eye, refusing to write regulations, you got to ask yourself, what are your tax dollars doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Mickey, you microdose, correct? Yeah, I've been microdosing since, I guess, May 2020. The one that I just recently got my dose from was a dispenser on Hastings called the Mushroom Dispensary. And they're attached to a cafe. And you go in and all you have to do is show ID. So it kind of reminds me of the way cannabis was pre-decriminalization. So why do you think that there is, like, I know that you were saying before that the government has a responsibility to its citizens to not harm anyone. But if you look at what's happening in the States and how fast that's moving in terms of them wanting to decriminalize literally everything, including acid and anything you can think of for therapeutic reasons and guided therapy. Is it just because we're Canadians and our Canadian government is traditionally really, really slow? Or is there more of a, they want to sort of follow the road of financializing it and commodifying it in a proper way? Because of those dispensaries are operating right now, and they have been in the last month. It's growing insanely rapidly. Yeah. And, you know, the government has been doing some good things. Like the Justice Department actually put out some guidelines for prosecutors. I think it was like a year and a half ago, maybe or a year ago. And this isn't my legal opinion or anything. But if you go and read those guidelines, it essentially says that Canada decriminalized drugs like a year and a half ago, all of them. Obviously, it's like if, you know, someone is defined someone using something like heroin or psilocybin or any other drug for personal use, prosecutors are suggested not to arrest them. And that's what happened in you know, a bunch of US cities. And we call that decriminalization. And the truth is, is that those drugs are still legal. And in Canada, it's the same. They're still illegal. But in a way, the government's kind of like doing the right thing. You know, They're not putting people in jail for what is probably a mental health condition and a substance use issue, not a violent crime. So we are changing and things are going in the right direction for sure. And governments are slow, but they're also super fast, right? Look at what happened with COVID. You've never seen a government move so fast. And it's honestly, it's been an amazing thing, an amazing feat of science, of of politics, no matter what people say about their critique of the way COVID mandates and everything rolled out. It's been amazing. And it's been fast and the fastest we've ever been able to, you know, change laws and make changes to people's rights and to create vaccines. So people can move fast when there's enough incentive. And our hope has been that we can show the government that there's a serious problem here, right? And that serious problem is that there are thousands of Canadians today using this substance, whether it's on the streets, at this cafe you're talking about. I mean, you yourself are a perfect example, right? Those laws are there to protect you. And you're clearly benefiting from microdosing. I mean, if you continue to do it, I hope it's benefiting you. There should be regulations in place to protect you to make sure that whatever you're eating is safe. And that's just the way it goes. And it's public opinion that changes that. And public opinion, along with the government, you know, seeing an issue that's getting a bit uncomfortable. When it becomes uncomfortable enough, they deal with it. Again, that's my job is to make it uncomfortable. You know, we've got exemptions out for 
people with substance use disorder, veterans with PTSD, and palliative patients. And to an extent, after talking with all of them, the line between who's palliative and who's not is really blurry, right? Because there's patients we have exemptions out for who, if they relapse again next week, it might be the last. So who's to say they're not palliative? And what about the veteran who has an increased likelihood of suicide? They may not be around in three months, just like that cancer patient or the person with ALS may not be around. So it's these blurry lines and we are trying to make the government uncomfortable and they could move quick. They really could move quickly to make this happen. So yeah, they're slow, but when they need to be fast, they can be and we can ask that from them. Where do you see other therapeutic drugs? Do you think it's going to be a situation where everything is legalized at once? Because I know you guys are just focusing on psilocybin. But of course, there's lots of other types of therapeutic drug use, not specifically psychedelic, that would probably be on the docket next. So why wouldn't they just, if they want to go fast, just sort of approve everything? Or is it specifically psilocybin because you guys are making your voices heard the most? Or are there other factions representing other psychedelics for therapeutic purposes that are on the horizon? The way I see it is, I actually agree with Patty Haiju, who you may see me in the media all the time, kind of bashing her and asking her for some help. But I really respect Patty Haiju. She's the greatest health minister we've ever seen in Canada, if you ask me. And she's extremely compassionate. And she once said that she's, I'm going to try and quote her here, but maybe don't quote me on this, but pretty sure she said something along the lines of, I'm interested in looking to decriminalize drugs, but starting with treatment options. And I think that for me, that rings a bell. We could just decriminalize everything right now and make them all available. And who knows what would happen? We got a lot of smart people in Canada and the government is very slow, but they're not that slow. And we can start rolling out the ones that have the highest demand. We can go in some order to protect Canadians and make sure that whatever change we make isn't negatively impacting us. So my personal belief is, what is public consensus day? And we've done the polls and we found that 66% of Canadians are in favor of psilocybin regulations. Those are ridiculously high numbers. They're probably not the same for, for LSD and MDMA. And psilocybin is already being sold on the street too. The others aren't. You know, most people know, some people have actually had experience more with mushrooms and with those other substances, given the fact that they grow on the ground too is another reason, right? Psilocybin is the right one to do first. And I really believe that here's a model that we can use for a substance that again, grows on the ground is an extremely safe profile, just like cannabis. And those regulations we wrote are literally just the cannabis regulations with psilocybin put in place. Now, when that same logic, you try to apply it to a substance that is maybe like a pharmaceutical or grown in the lab, it starts to fall apart a bit if you're going to call it a drug. Because you know one of the big challenges we've had at Therosil is getting the government and Health Canada to listen that we're not trying to decriminalize a drug or to make a drug medically available. A drug needs to go through clinical trials and have a DIN. What we're looking to do is make regulations for a controlled substance called psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And it's completely different. So yeah, MDMA, if we're talking about the drug MDMA, absolutely, clinical trials, and let's make it accessible. And if people are going to do it on the black market too, and if they want MDMA, not the drug, but controlled substance, who would say that we wouldn't be doing more good than harm if we made some form of regulations where they could do it in their doctor instead of going underground to do it? I mean, that's kind of the position here, right? Is you're always going to be safer doing the drug that you're doing anyways with a doctor. What have you guys learned so far with the patients you've worked with, how the therapy has helped them? Like, what are results of using psilocybin therapy? There's someone out there listening right now who's never tried it before and obviously has heard people doing it. And it's obviously something that's coming into mind in, in society. How does it help you versus other types of antidepressants or things that people use? Because the one thing I do know is that psilocybin is not addictive and it's obviously a natural thing that grows in the ground. How does it help people? What does it do? 
One of the biggest things that it does is really helps you take the subconscious and make it conscious. And that's a difficult thing for people to do. I'll give you one example of a patient who was extremely afraid of leaving their family behind after they left. And no matter how much therapy you do, it's hard to get that out from them. It's really hard to get them to admit it. Admit that you are afraid that when you're gone, you may be leaving your family and the ones you love to the unknown, to chaos. And you feel like you're their protector and you're there to support them. And what you actually need to let go of is the fact that when you're gone, they'll be fine. And when that is really subconscious, I mean, the whole purpose of subconscious is if you don't really notice it. And to bring it up to the surface is sometimes just a realization. And we've seen the same thing with a patient who found out that their anxiety, their addiction, their depression was not because of their diagnosis. It was because they were traumatized from childhood abuse. And after 60 years, they had never once told anyone about it. Yet it comes out, the memories appear, and they deal with it. And in their psilocybin trip, I mean, the way it manifests itself to them is there's a demon standing over them, and they're terrified. And they reach out to their therapist, and they say, hold my hand, there's a demon above me. And the therapist says, you don't need my help. Confront the demon. What is it? Who is it? And they find out, it's this person. And they abused me as a child. And in their words, I ain't afraid of jack shit anymore. And they get over it. It's amazing. And those are, you know, two examples of bringing the subconscious traumas to the surface. And, you know, that's interesting because you think, well, why do you have to be dying to do that? And that's kind of our question, right? Is in many instances, it has nothing to do with the fact that they have an end-of-life diagnosis. Simply the fact that the end is in near is making them realize that there's unfinished business. There are things that they have not done that they need to do before they leave. And there, there's also other instances, a bit less maybe psychological, but it's hard to say, where we've supported folks with cluster headaches, like chronic pain. And it's really this nerve behind your eyes that I've been described. It feels like there's hot acid or boiling water being injected behind your eyes. And it levels people for four months of the year. Some would say it's the most painful condition known to mankind or humankind. And there's just nothing we know about it. We don't know why it happens. There's almost no treatments for it. The only treatment really is some experimental drugs that have terrible negative effects on some people or don't work or pure oxygen. And it's just too difficult to get pure oxygen and be on it all the time. And so these cluster headaches really just absolutely level people. And there's a reason they call it suicides disease because it's just, what do you do when you're in that much pain? And for many people, there's no options. So they've been using psilocybin. And again, we don't know why this works. We don't know what happens, but we know that these people are using one to two grams every weekend and just doing a little trip by themselves with no psychotherapist. And it's completely allowing them to live their lives pain-free, no more cluster headaches. Wow. It's simply amazing. And this is the real shame is that there are human beings, Canadian citizens today who have a medicine that the government will not allow them to call medicine or use as medicine. And it almost doesn't matter. Give this person access to the thing that's helping them. That's what we're asking for. It's funny. I was actually just listening to, because I just finished reading Michael Pollan's new book, uh, How to Change Your Mind on Plants. And I was listening to a conversation he just did with Box. And he has this great quote, which I love. It's extraordinary that the plant world might be offering us an antidote to the flight from nature. These plants call us back to nature and nothing seems more valuable right now than something with that power. It touches on exactly what you're talking about right now is that these plants have something that they can offer us natural. And, you know, one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on today is, you know, we're a food and culture podcast. We deal with people who work in industries or where they're surrounded by stress and alcohol and people have a lot of issues. And, you know, we've had people on in the past who 
have started organizations like ones like Mind the Bar, where they're trying to deal with people who deal with depression and anxiety and difficult things in their lives. What you guys are presenting is a very, very good option and very viable option and probably a very healthy option. You know, maybe having it more controlled and having more ways for people to access it in different points and stuff like this is definitely something I think probably on tip of mind for a lot of people, but it's, it's really exciting that you guys are presenting this. How much consultation did you guys do through your proposal? Did you guys meet with a lot of other doctors and psychotherapists and stuff like this? Did you talk with the indigenous communities or anything like that? Yeah, so on our side, the public consultation is actually more of our afterthought. All we've done is taken the exact cannabis regulations that we have in Canada in place right now and then changed the word psilocybin. And obviously some of the obvious things, right? Like we're not talking about plants anymore. We're talking about substrate and fungi. And we've just shifted them over. The point is that when we present this to the government, it's administratively easy, right? We give this to Health Canada and it's like, this is 99% the same as these cannabis regulations right here that you're currently using. It's 99% the same. So you know everything, take it. And let's understand that these are very similar and that we need a similar regulatory framework. And so the public consultation is what we're working on right now. And it's absolutely our intention to go back to all of the doctors, therapists, all of our stakeholders, really. And we've mapped out and been working with our stakeholders for the past year and a half. But to go back to all of them, and that would include industry as well, right? The folks who are going to be making clinics, growing psilocybin, making GMP certified synthetics and synthesized versions and extracts. The whole purpose is to include all of them, right? And hopefully folks like Matt's and the Canadian Psychedelic Association too, to work with them to say, okay, here are the regulations we have in place for cannabis. We know this works. We don't have to question whether or not the law on this will work. It already has worked. Now what needs to change? And the truth is, is that if nothing changed at all, we'd probably have a pretty good system. However, there are definitely things that need to change because the substance we're talking about is inherently different, right? It requires therapists sometimes to use it for their training. Patients don't need as much. They don't need to take it as often. It's taken differently. You know, you wouldn't smoke it. So it's mostly the same. And the consultation is what we're going to be starting in about a week or two. And we're going to go through each section, each part, and we're going to ask people, do you agree or not with this? What changes do you want to see? And we'll collect that. We'll do the work that Health Canada should be doing right now. They should be the ones asking people what they think, just like they should be the ones reaching out to the patients and listening to the doctors. But if they don't want to, put it right in front of their face and we'll show them what to do. So the consultation is happening now. Are more doctors receptive to this type of therapy versus possibly giving patients a pill or something like this? Are they open to these ideas or are they hesitant to kind of jump on this? In my experience, they're more open. And again, it's because of the differences, right? We're not asking a doctor to put someone on a regiment of continuously smoking cannabis. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's simply one use case. And that use case is with a trained healthcare practitioner. So right away, you tell a doctor, patient A is going to do this drug and patient B is going to do this drug. And there's no such thing as a safe drug, but certainly the one that actually has a better safety profile and is going to be used with a therapist. I think that doctor is going to feel a bit more comfortable writing that prescription, helping that person. I can also say that the patients that we've been focused on and helping are extremely sick. I've tried everything else. So when it comes to trying psilocybin and you've tried everything else, psilocybin at that point kind of represents a reasonable medical choice. So yeah, we've had great luck. I'm biased. The people around me are the ones reaching out to me. Maybe if I was to reach out to a conference of doctors who didn't know anything about psilocybin yet, I'd get a different response. In fact, I'm sure I would. But yeah, so far, we've been very lucky to have a lot of great doctors who are, if not writing support letters for patients, very interested in learning more. 
I think they legalized psilocybin in Oregon back last year. I think I remember reading about that correctly. Have you guys looked into how that's been for them, how it's been rolled out and how it's been accepted and kind of gone about? I'm in contact with many of the people who ran that campaign and we're looking forward to running our regulations by them because you learn a lot when you're trying to get regulations built. And I hear that they've learned a lot and you know they've narrowly avoided some big mistakes and, and that's great, right? That's what this is all about. So we'll be in touch with them. I mean, we were on a couple of the calls that they had done webinars and supporting as kind of members of this Cascadia mountain range in the Pacific Northwest. I love what they're doing. And absolutely, I mean, when we get down to it, if the federal government was to adopt regulations such as this, such as the ones we put forward, it would still be up to each province to essentially dole out what it means in their province and then to the colleges as well. So in that same kind of sense, you know, it's almost backwards from what the Canadian model is. Their states are actually going first, right? Because psilocybin isn't decriminalized or legalized at the federal level in the United States. It's actually just the states that are saying, in this state, you're not going to go to jail. But, you know, you got to be careful because the second you cross the border to the next state, you're in trouble. But anyways, yeah, they're going to learn a lot. They're going to create a model that works really well for them. And we'll do one that works very well for us. And they'll inherently be a little bit different just because of some of the laws. But I would hope and I know that there'll be a lot of collaboration because many of the people who are behind that are behind this and, and vice versa. It's amazing. I love that. It makes you wonder if in like 10 years, if you're a doctor going into medical school, they're going to start to have to have like classes or programs where you're going to have to learn about these types of drugs and their use in society and using them as better and more preferred forms of medication. And, you know, just to scale, like I would think I'm not a doctor, but is it not common sense to think that if your two choices are like an SSRI that you're probably going to get pretty stuck on? and take over the course of many years, and it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and you line that up against a mushroom that's pretty much free that you're going to take once, don't you think that even if this one has more research, you should maybe just try that one quick first? And it's not the only plant medicine that's like that, too. So yeah, I agree. I hope that they're learning about it. And that's why, as part of our organization, right, I really cannot accentuate the importance of our public education and professional training. We literally have, I think we're on track to train about 300 healthcare practitioners this year or in 12 months. And we want to ramp that up to 500, if not a thousand next year, because if we can just get therapists and doctors learning about this, and if we can incentivize them and make sure that there's ample places for them to learn, we won't be in the same situation that we find ourselves in with cannabis, where like still in Toronto, you go down and ask the chief psychiatrist at a Toronto hospital, are you prescribing cannabis for any of your palliative patients or cancer patients? And the answer is no way. It's been legalized for 20 years. I just finished a psychology course. I know that you're saying that's your main field of study. And my main takeaway from just that one sort of survey course, like an introductory course, was that due to the cross-pollination of all these different disciplines, especially neuroscience, we're starting to figure out what all of these sort of like, I guess you can call them ancient technologies or some people like to call them internal alchemy, stuff that they were in recorded history they were doing a long time ago. And even something as simple as breath work has not gained a lot of traction, even though there's many industry professionals talking about these sort of things. I kind of see psilocybin and cannabis sort of in that same realm of stuff that comes from the earth and stuff that we can do to sort of alter not only how we are feeling psychologically in terms of how much anxiety or depression we experience, but also things like you're talking about with trauma and addiction and things like that. I feel like there's this sort of weird culmination point happening in all these different disciplines. And the main takeaway I had from that course was that if you go to a therapist or psychotherapist or any sort of counselor or life coach, or whatever, they're really going to ask you three things. They're going to say, like, what are you eating? 
how much anaerobic exercise are you getting? And how much mindfulness? I know is a cliche word right now, but I like to call it focus work. But they're going to ask you those few things before they start to prescribe any of these SSRs or anything like that. And I think that speaks a lot to sort of like where these industries are converging. And hopefully that's sort of still going the right way because to me, they're all sort of interconnected and interrelated, right? Absolutely. And you talk about like ancient practices and these, you know, ancient things. I mean, the brain is like the most complex thing in the known universe. What's one thing that we understand less? In our universe, our solar system at least, maybe universe, is like, there's nothing more complex. And to think that we've got it nailed down and that these medications are going to work, they work every time, right? It's pretty presumptuous. I think we're learning a lot. I love science. But there are some things that, you know, if you just take a look at like ancient history and really the evolution of our culture, you see that we built these things over thousands of years and they're inherently good. And like you talk about, you know, that mindfulness or like self-work, like I don't think any of us are claiming to invent that. Like that was religion, right? That was Buddhism. That was Taoism. That was all these things that came not just a couple years, like thousands of years before us. And they've known that that's worked. And, you know, it was recently that we changed our diets. You know, we moved away from milk to orange juice, from steak to pasta. And is any of that really helping? Did the food pyramid help us? No. You go back to what we've been eating for thousands of years and you see that maybe we had it figured out. Maybe, you know, the plants are better and the natural substances are better than whatever we commercialize and try to overly process. So I totally agree. And I think it applies to many different things. And specifically when you see a medicine that comes around with the history and profile and experience of things like ayahuasca and psilocybin have. Again, why are these illegal? Why aren't they the first choice? Why aren't we more interested in them? And why doesn't our government allow the patients and the people who are using them do so freely? I think, not to sort of jump in again, but I do think there is this weird stigmatization associated with natural alternatives to pharmaceuticals which we're still kind of dealing with. And when you have people like Michael Pollan writing books like this, and you have people who are considered to be experts in their field starting to say like, hey, no, this is an actual legitimate alternative to the way we've been focusing on not only mental health, but health in general. I was listening to a podcast, Russell Brand's podcast, he had Jordan Peterson on. And Jordan Peterson, we all know Jordan Peterson, if you disagree with him or agree with him, whatever. So you just had a near-death experience, right? And he's recovering. Anyone listening, if you haven't listened to Jordan Peterson and Russell Brand's podcast, I think it was like six or seven months ago, it's one of the most candid sort of turnaround moments I've ever heard in sort of the realm of like psychology and also philosophy. And he completely has changed his tune. He actually stated on this podcast that he thinks, and he's a devout Christian, he thinks that the entire New Testament was written on psilocybin. I'm quoting literally. So I think it's a really cool time that these people are sort of starting to, and obviously it's not ideal that he has a near-death experience to make him see that, but I'm assuming you deal with palliative care and PTSD and that kind of stuff. It maybe hyper-accelerates this need to have medicine from the earth give us a better perspective on things like existentialism and death. But I just want to throw that in because I, when I heard him say that, I was like, what the fuck? Jordan Peterson just said that the dudes who wrote the Bible in the New Testament were all on mushrooms, essentially. That'd be a fun ride, though. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, if you read the book of Revelations, I grew up a Catholic and I've read the Bible and went to Catholic school and the book of Revelations. I mean, you tell me that that doesn't closely reflect the mushroom trip. Why not, right? I think that there's this book, I haven't quite read it yet. I'm reading it now called The Immortality Key. And I obviously love the work that Terrence McKenna had done in his Stone Date Theory. And whatever brought about these stories that I was reading in the Bible and that I'm sure you can find in the Torah or in the Quran or any other book. These are otherworldly stories, angels, devils, great floods. They're biblical. There are these archetypes that keep coming out in mushroom journeys and mushroom trips. And they just seem so similar 
that you've got to ask yourself, like these substances, these mushrooms that have been around far longer than us, or even this book and these stories, why wouldn't they have brought us to the same conclusions that these stories are trying to bring us to, right? That we're all one, we're all together, that there's a higher purpose the books, and I believe religions in some ways are the ancient psychology. I mean, what did we have before we had psychotherapists? We had rabbis and priests, and we had a book that helped try and guide us and give us purpose and meaning. And, you know, when Nietzsche said that God is dead, he wasn't saying that, that that's just stating it's a fact. He was worried about what's going to replace him. And so often, you know, I think it's Viktor Frankl um, in Man's Search for Meaning, he's saying that people just have no meaning, but the ones that do, you know, the person that has a why can get through any how. And I'll be damned if that's not what we're seeing with psilocybin is that so many people just forget what their why is. And with the right why, they get through their hows easily. And so I'm not saying that all psilocybin revolves around, you know, any religion or Viktor Frankl or any of that, but that to me, those are the connections that are made. Is like, oh my gosh, my whole life, everything I learned as a kid through the Bible and through the religious works, I see it in what I'm seeing now with psilocybin. I see it there. There's evidence of it. I can relate exactly to that because when I started microdosing psilocybin, the three most noticeable changes that I had in terms of my thought process or my perspective, however you want to call it, was this innate sort of connectivity to not only like the people around me, but to literally like the air molecules. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. It sounds when you talk about this kind of stuff, like this sort of phony holy or like woo stuff. But it's really not because that's what psilocybin does. It has that property for me specifically. This is my own personal experience in the last year and a half. When I'm dosing, I feel connected to everything. And it's not just like inanimate objects, but they're not inanimate objects, but like plants and trees and people. There's this connectivity and also mood elevation, of course, and my anxiety went down. But that's like the main thing I noticed right away is I feel connected. That's the only way I can describe it is connected to everything. Do you recommend that people should microdose? I do. I'm trying to get everybody I know on it. My mom is doing psilocybin now. But again, it's one of those things where you have to come to it on your own, I think. And I think that can be an analogy for most things in life is like you have to be ready to be able to intently pursue something, right? So I can recommend it to anyone, but it might not be the right time for them. And obviously, we're talking, this is like recreational use for things like general anxiety and stuff like that. I can really speak to that. But I definitely think that it's an enhancement to anyone wanting to sort of change. Another thing I think it does, not to ramble on here, but I think with anything when you're talking about like ancient religions or ancient technologies or like all these kind of stuff of like our human quest to sort of find ourselves and find our place in the cosmic universe or do we have alternate planes of consciousness? Like what are these like famous spiritual leaders we're talking about? I find that when you sort of like get into that mindset and you can kind of access that part of your brain, like talking about neuroscience, because there are different parts of the brain that are activated through certain patterns of thinking. And that's something that happens with addiction, right? You get obviously alcohol dampening your nervous system. There's different areas that if you can spark them or excite them, you can start to think differently about things. And I think that's also something that's really important in my experience with psilocybin, even though it's only been a year and a half, is now that I've accessed that part of my brain or that way of thinking, I can now get back to it easily. So I've like created a neural pathway to that way of thinking. And I think that's something that I haven't heard too many people talk about in terms of the benefits of psilocybin. But for me, that's a really big thing that I've noticed. So not only is it giving you direct access to that, it's also allowing you to revisit that area, if that makes any sense at all. It absolutely does, because that's the purpose of integration, right? So when we talk with these patients, I mean, let's go back to the patient stories, right? What we're seeing right now. You talk to the patient like Lori Brooks, whose story you were talking about, technically with Jamie, right? She was able to, for the first time, realize that the cancer that was looming over her head could be put away. And she said she was able to put it into a box to get past it. 
because what was important was her family right now and living. And so it's easy to realize that on your trip, right? You've got an altered state of consciousness and, you know, maybe the same thing goes with other substances too, like when you're on cannabis or maybe even when you're on alcohol, right? You're able to loosen up, but then the second you're off your substance, it's gone. You're absolutely right. The nice thing about the psilocybin is with the therapy, and this is really the importance of therapy, is you can be trained and your mind trained to go back to that. And so she still remembers about her cancer and the cloud will come out. She puts it beautifully though, that now she has learned and remembered, she puts it back in the box and it goes away back in the box. So you're absolutely right. Being able to move into that state of mind kind of on demand is you learning to deal with your trauma, is you learning to deal with your what because of your how. And so it really is a beautiful thing. And I think that's the purpose of the substance is you do it without having to take the substance over and over again. Something I might add too about microdosing is I actually have never really tried microdosing too much. And when people ask me about it, all I know is some of the research. And it's interesting that some of the research actually does the placebo, which isn't to be taken the wrong way. It doesn't mean that it's not helping people. It just means that it's the human mind that's helping the person, whether they're taking psilocybin or not. The act of them thinking that this thing is going to help me and that I can fix it and that I'm going to change helps people a lot. And so I always tell them, you know, why don't you start with meditation? Because meditation will do the same thing. It's proven to do the same thing. It's free. It's not illegal. And it's probably good for you. Wise words. I will concur with that. Mickey's been trying to get me to do meditation for quite a while here. So I definitely need to try some of that. What do you call it? Mindfulness? I haven't heard this term, but I call it focus work. I'm also studying Eastern religions right now. And mindfulness to me, and I know that the Buddha talked a lot about mindfulness. And sort of Lao Tzu and a lot of the Tao teachings talk about mindfulness. But in a Western context, it's more like focus work because we're setting an intention to focus on our mind and body connecting in a fashion that our sort of like death spiral of thoughts kind of stops. And we can actually just like connect these two things through our brainstem and something that Wim Hof talks about a lot. But that's why I like to think of it as focusing because it's not like, I don't know, mindfulness is focusing, whatever. It's, it's just a preference. But yeah, breath work and meditation, like you were saying, are all avenues and tools that we can use to alter our psychology and just get us in a better state for sure. Yeah, Jamie, we'll get you on that. Jamie, I mean, if there's anything that ever makes you nervous, I used to be pretty nervous about public speaking. And one thing that I would just do is like 10 minutes before or like 20 minutes before the speaking, I would just, as you were saying, close your eyes, deep breaths, and just try and remove every single thought from your mind. And just imagine that you're just this beam of consciousness floating in space, which like is pretty easy with your eyes closed and you're just floating there. Feel your body. And I swear to God, at like seven minutes in, you've just like, whoa, all this anxiety, everything just leaves from you because you're just so focused and it's gone. It's totally gone. And in there comes this realization that no amount of anxiety is ever going to help you. And that if you can just focus on things, you can throw away those other spiral and death thoughts that are always looming behind you. So if there's anything that never makes you nervous, I found that that's a good way to concentrate on fixing something with your meditation, which usually gets you to the point where you realize it works, even for any listeners out there. If there's anything that makes you nervous, you know, and you got 10 minutes before it, just try it. Try and focus on absolutely nothing. It's definitely a tactic that's used a lot in sports. I would definitely do that when I would compete. I was a big athlete growing up. But I find the best thing that helps me when I deal with anxiety nowadays is I just need to exercise. Whenever I exercise, I'll go play some basketball or I'll go for a bike ride or something. And it always just calms me. But what is that, Jamie? What is the act of going to play basketball? You're focusing on something. You have a ball. You have a goal. And that exercise, you're allowing yourself to listen to yourself. What do you do when you exercise? You have time to think, right? Because your body is focused on just doing a task, right? Anything like that, I think it's considered a form of meditation. Even going to like the nail salon and getting a mani-pedi or whatever, what is that? You're just sitting in silence. 
and maybe you're having a conversation or getting your hair cut. I think these are all things that can be interpreted as a type of focus work. So basically, when people see me playing basketball at Strathcona, they're, oh, Jamie's dealing with his anxiety. <laughs> Jamie's dealing with some shit. <laughs> probably. I mean, it's, it's probably a huge piece of your mental well-being, is it not? Like, obviously, there's the physical, too. And maybe you want to, you know, get pretty good at basketball for when you're playing with your friends, too. But we're only human. And you must feel the same way I do. It's just like, got to get out there and do something. And for me, you know, it's like surfing or skiing. And for you, like basketball and biking and Everyone's got their thing. And to say it's purely just like, oh, I crave doing it is like, well, that's your mind that's craving. Make no mistake. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you guys think that once this is rolled out, because it will be legalized eventually, do you think it will be a quick, like the ball will get rolling pretty quickly and you'll start seeing it in the market pretty quickly? Oh, yeah. Like I got a call yesterday and almost every week there's another organization reaching out. Hey, we just got a license to grow. So for me, I'm like, well, been like 10 companies in the last like half year that have reached out and are talking to me about growing mushrooms for research purposes and not quite yet available for therapeutic use because we have to make changes to our FDR first. But why are there so many companies growing mushrooms in Canada if it's only for research? We don't need that. My hope is that Health Canada sees the demand out there and they're building the infrastructure so that when it's legal, there's a number of companies that can produce it. I mean, we saw that with cannabis, right? I'm pretty sure the first company that was able to produce was Prairie Plant Systems, I think out of Saskatchewan or Manitoba. And of course, that was a disaster. Not a huge disaster, but we needed more options. So yeah, I think they're getting ready. I think that the industry and market is going to be ready. The valuations of some of these companies. But I also, and this is my message consistently to anyone who wants to get into mushrooms, right? Join the so-called shroom boom. This is a service market. This is about therapists, psychologists, and doctors being able to do their work that they already do better. And what we've seen is tons of patients who are very comfortable doing psilocybin, not in some fancy clinic downtown Vancouver or Toronto. I'm sure there are some that want to do it there too, but they want to do it in their home or they want to do it in the therapist's office or they want to go do it in a year in the forest somewhere in a hammock. And what better place than those places to let your mind be free with all your worldly worries. The tools, they're already there, right? We've had them for thousands of years and we've got therapists and doctors that can help us. My biggest fear is not the industry, right? I think industry, the guys who are building companies and the women who are building companies and everyone who wants to perhaps make money, but also provide value. I think the thing that I'm most concerned about are the nurses, are the doctors and are the therapists going to be ready, right? Are the patients going to have enough support in order to do this safely? Which is, again, why we're doing this training program, why we're training hundreds of therapists and doctors. We're doing it pretty much at cost. It's not to make money. It is purely for the interest of patients make sure that they're safe and that they got people to help. That's awesome. You guys are doing good work. I love that. Do you think you've got any pushback from people who are more all about not making it like this way and still keeping it underground type idea and natural? And Yeah. And I think there's even a higher quality argument that I've seen than just like keeping it underground is really more like acknowledging that there are traditional knowledge holders and whether that be like the Oaxacans that have been using this for hundreds of years or any indigenous users of the medicine, or even it's hard to say who the indigenous users are. It's been used all over the world. So let's just even say the underground users, right, who have been doing this for years. You know, there's this question of, is what we're doing fair? What about them, right? They've been using this medicine and we're just limited by what our mandate is at Therese, right? We're focusing on the medical model right now and we absolutely support the decriminalization of psilocybin and no one should be going to jail for using this to heal. But what we're talking about is simply just the medical route, right? Doing it with your doctor and patient. And it's the path we happened and, and chose to take because we see it 
as the most utilitarian and best way to help people who seriously need help, right? The dying patients, the veterans, those with substance use, with cluster headaches. If it's already going well underground, I mean, I'm not going to stop them from doing that, but I'm certainly going to advocate and support that if there's room in our medical model, right? If there's room for a great organization that Health Canada is to support people, I mean, that's where our tax dollars are going. So I want to see those tax dollars put to use, helping my friends and the people who we've been supporting. Again, like for those people who have been doing it their way and traditional ways, absolutely carry on more power to you. And maybe one day I'll get involved and, and try and support that kind of work. But for right now, very focused on the medical and the medical access. Yeah. And the education is super key too, right? I actually just want to throw in a quick little anecdote. I was at Rec Beach, which people in Vancouver, I'm sure you know Rec Beach is our resident new beach up on BC. And I was talking to a guy that I sometimes get chocolate matches from. His name's Cloud. And I was asking him what he thinks about, this is a few weeks ago, what he thinks about this upsprouting of, I guess you want to call it the shroom boom. I haven't heard that before, but I'm going to steal that. I was asking about the dispensaries and he was saying the same thing. He was saying that it's all going to sort of work itself out and it will be eventually when you want like a really like traditional experience, you'll go to guys like him and he'll hand crush it in Tibetan crushing bowls. That'll be sort of like a more sort of like direct path to a certain place. Kind of like a really fine wine from Lower Valley, right? And you'll have regular access stuff that you can get. So hopefully it kind of goes that way. But I think what you were saying about education is obviously, and the medical use is the hugest thing right now and the best way forward in order to get our federal government to recognize the benefits. Yeah. And you know, you're introducing a substance to 34 million people. It's like, there's a responsible way to do it. My heart really tells me that like, yes, you know, in five or 10 years, we may see a totally different Canada where all drugs are a bit more liberalized, more people are getting help. My hope is it's going to make a lot of Canadians safer and pull people who are wrongfully incriminated out of jail. But in those couple of years that it's going to take, because nothing happens overnight, I want to see this happen responsibly. And in the wise words of Patty, as I said before, starting with treatment options, starting with education conservative treatment options, and then data will help us. And again, these regulations that we built, data is built into there. Health Canada need only look at this and say, cool, let's put this together. And if the data doesn't support what we're doing, and if there's any data to say that this is harmful for Canadians, because very little exists right now, if not none, to say that psilocybin is really harmful. If the data tells us otherwise, then we change our minds off of the data. I see this as a very responsible way. If we start finding out the mushrooms doing more harm than good, kind of like our regulations are doing right now, then we change them around and we make it work out. But turning this blind eye and ignoring it, it's not the solution. Once again, something I always tend to say, I couldn't agree with you more. To recap here, because we're hitting about the hour mark and I'm pretty sure you have to get going. Anybody out there listening right now who's maybe dealing with their own personal issues, trauma, depression, anxiety, what advice would you give to them right now for maybe seeking out support or maybe checking out stuff like this? What would you say? Well, my advice would be, is the CEO out there. So let's reach out to us if you're looking to use psilocybin and let's make it legal and let's get you legal access through section 56, get you connected with a doctor and a therapist and make sure that if you're already going to do it, that you're doing it safely because that's the number one thing, right? Is safety and making sure that we're protecting Canadians and patients who want to use it. We'll educate you as well and make sure that you're aware of the risks and limitations because psilocybin is not for everyone. And again, why I think it's important to have doctors and therapists and, and people consulting you. So the truth at the same time is we've got a small team. We're down to one intake nurse who's doing the applications, Natasha, and she's working a butt off, but we're a nonprofit. We're publicly funded. So we just run off the donations. Obviously we could always use donations, but I also think that even right now with the limited section 56s that we can apply, still reaching out, letting us know that you're there, 
and who you are and what you need access for helps us share that information with the government. It makes our case stronger. And of course, by doing that, we hope we can get more email messages specifically about the regulations because we've known that Section 56, what we're doing, again, it's like one intake nurse, perhaps millions of Canadians. We're a bottleneck and we don't want to be one. And we'd love nothing more than to be put out of a job, I think, at this point because of something like regulations coming in and doctors and therapists being able to do this themselves. So, you know, please, if you're into what's going on here, could not tell you how much it helps to write to your MP. And we've got a tool for that on our website, just to share the posts that we put on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter to write to Patty Hyde. Everyone at this point has seen the power of social media and important causes. And I hope that other Canadians see how important psilocybin may be in not only upholding the rights of Canadian patients who are currently using it and in need, but all the other people who, who it may benefit. So it's a big issue. I hope others see that too. And only with the support of other Canadians will we ever get our government to act on regulations or decriminalization or supporting patients. Yeah, let's get you out of a job so you can go do more surfing. You're in Euclid, right? <laughs> Would be nice. Get you on that water. Any other plans for you this summer? Any fun stuff or are you just work, work, work right now? Definitely going to be a bit of work, 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 but I'm really enjoying the surfing and I think I'm going to go climb one of the, the highest mountains on the island here. The name's escaping me right now. The Golden Hind, I think it's called. Hike, pretty excited for that. Work-life balance is pretty important. You're a mountain climber? No. <laughs> so this will be new for me. It's a class four scramble, so it's nothing that needs ropes. Apparently I'm told I need a helmet, but I'm pretty keen to learn mountain climbing at some point. I'm big into touring, backcountry skiing, and see mountain climbing as an obvious kind of one up there to start learning. Absolutely. I mean, I remember watching that free solo documentary. Oh my God, that guy was insane. Yeah. I mean, El Capitan, like no ropes or nothing, but amazing, really cool. You're in the right place. You're on Vancouver Island, beautiful place, a lot of nature, a lot of great ways for you to escape and explore nature. We appreciate you coming on today. Mickey, you got anything else you want to drop here? No, I just want to thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Really, this has been an absolute treat. I love talking about this. Really excited to see when this comes out and share it with everyone. I think it's an excellent way to do the education that we're just talking about. People hearing the stories, being able to share it with their friends, that's important. So really, on behalf of everyone at Therasil and the people that are looking to others to raise their case to the minister, thank you so much. Everyone check out Therasil. Make sure you take care of your mind. Eat well, exercise. If you are needed of any assistance in this area, definitely check out their website. They can have a lot of information there for you. Let's get this passed by Health Canada and hopefully we can make psilocybin a legal substance in Canada soon. And that way we can, like you said, we can help a lot of Canadians in need making sure that people are having a clear mind and happy and healthy. And on behalf of me and Mickey, we thank you for listening today. And thank you, Spencer. Thank you.